48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Steve Dunthorne. Tonight's headlines. Most of the pro-democracy camp decided to stay on in LegCo for an extra year. Duncan Pascoe is leaving his post as CEO of the West Kowloon Cultural District Authority. And Beijing condemns calls for National Day protests in Hong Kong. Almost all of LegCo's pro-democracy lawmakers have decided to stay on in the council for the extra year arranged by Beijing. A public opinion poll on whether they should stay or go didn't provide a clear answer. Francis Sitt reports. The camp had been split on whether to continue in Leshko for another 12 months, being as there's been no election as planned this year, and many were hoping the opinion poll would point them in the right direction. But it didn't really resolve the matter. Some 2,500 people were surveyed last week, of which 730 claimed to be supporters of the lawmakers. Around 47% of these supporters said the pro-democracy camp should remain in the council in the coming year. Only 1.3% points more than those who thought they should quit. The result then, they've nearly all decided to stay. The camp's new convener, Democratic Party Chairman Wu Chi-Wai, says it was a difficult choice to make, but remaining in the council is the lesser of two evils. We can at least have some power, some force to fight against the government instead of simply give up the whole values to the whole establishment camp and the government that they can get whatever they want straight through. As if they're concerned they will suffer in future polls for the decision, Mr Wu said they will respect the will of the voters. Council fronts Chu Hoi Dick and Ray Chan from People Power had already said they were leaving LegCo. Now Tanya Chan says she's also quitting, both the legislature and the civic party, as she wants to rest and take care of her mother. Holding back tears, Ms Chan said an operation last year to remove a brain tumour had made her rethink what she wants in life. It's very difficult for me to learn that my mother um, stayed outside uh, the operation room for five hours due to my um, brain operation and be there cry for a total five hours. And uh, I owed her too much and so I really hope that we can uh, spend some quality time together. And so I really want um, to be with her and, and her without any pressure. The West Kowloon Cultural District Authority is looking for a new CEO. It says it has agreed to part company with current head Duncan Pascoe by mutual consent and he'll be leaving on November the 28th. Wendy Wong has more. Mr Pescott took over as CEO in August 2015, replacing Australian Michael Lynch, who had resigned citing personal reasons. Mr. Pascott had joined the authority the year before as Chief Operating Officer, after decades working for the government and just months after retiring from his final posts with the administration as Permanent Secretary for Transport and Housing and Director of Housing. The authority says it has called for a government official to be seconded to fill the CEO post while it launches a global search for Mr. Pascott's replacement. In a statement, Home Affairs Secretary Casper Choi thanked Mr. Pescott for his contributions to the development of the ASHOP project over the past six years. He said the government would consider the request for a sequenment and would provide all the necessary support. The struggling ASHOP has been plagued by cost overruns and construction delays, and its operating deficit is expected to hit $1.5 billion by the 2022-23 financial year. 
Beijing's liaison office has condemned calls for the release of a group of 12 Hong Kongers detained in Shenzhen, describing this as an absurd demand. And it has a warning for people encouraging protests on National Day. Candice Wong has details. In a statement, the liaison office says people with ulterior motives are spreading rumours about the arrest of the 12 Hong Kongers at sea last month, and they're using their detention to call for illegal demonstrations. It says the 12 are accused of crossing the border illegally, and as everybody knows, those who violate the law must be punished. The statement says radicals are inciting people to get hold of weapons and to attack police stations on National Day, which it describes as a blatant challenge to the SAL's national security law. The liaison office says it hopes the public will recognize the sinister intentions of a small group of people who hope to destabilize the city. And it adds that since the national security legislation came into effect three months ago, Hong Kong has started to move from chaos to a new stage of governance. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. Police say they've arrested three men over social media messages calling on people to protest on National Day and to attack officers. The force says the two 19-year-old students and a 30-year-old man are suspected of inciting people to take part in an illegal assembly, cause a public nuisance and commit arson. Chief Inspector Benjamin Tay from the Police's Technology Crime Division was asked whether the force was stepping up efforts to stamp out protests. By no means we are targeting anyone or targeting a particular event or a day. It's more like targeting the content of some of the incitement messages. To us, that's critical, because the incitement, the act, it has a criminality in it. And it's also affecting other citizens of the society. And that's what we have been targeting on. Police Chief Chris Tang has acknowledged that everyone in Hong Kong has the right to report on what goes on in the SAR, not just those working for media outlets. His comment comes just days after the force said it would stop recognising press passes and that only reporters registered with the government would be regarded as being genuine. Damon Pang has more. The police's move to redefine who is and who is not a real journalist has provoked fury among the media, with some groups considering legal action. And the issue was brought up at a meeting of the Yao Mong District Council. The police commissioner was asked why there was no consultation on the policy change or even just a press conference to announce it. Mr Tang replied that the changes were to internal guidelines for officers. He also conceded that people don't have to be a journalist to film any goings-on in the streets or report on something that is happening, and any member of the public can do this if they wish. But he still insisted that the police need their own way to determine if someone is a bona fide reporter or not. What I refer to normal reporting, there's only three criteria. They are not participate in the events, only reporting. They will not willfully obstruct our police operations. And the last criteria is they do not pose any threat or they are not trying to harm our police officers. Mr Tang was also asked about recent incidents in Mong Kok, where a pregnant woman was knocked down by officers and a 12-year-old girl was chased and tackled to the ground. His that video footage shows officers might not have heard the woman's husband warning that she was pregnant because it was so noisy. And the girl had acted suspiciously by running off, he said, and his officers were just trying to protect everyone's safety. Basically, we tackled and subdued that girl. 
And as you can see from the video, you may notice that when we are trying to do a stop and search on a group of people, and there's a young lady dash out, it is a police responsibility to stop and subdue that lady and to do investigations. Mr Tang said both the woman and the girl's family had filed complaints. The district court has thrown out a rioting charge against a social worker in connection with a protest in Wan Chai last year. The judge said she had no case to answer. Wendy Wong has details. Jackie Chan, a council member of the Social Workers General Union, was arrested at an anti-government protest on August 31st last year. She was part of a group of so-called battlefield social workers who often appeared at last year's demonstrations. They said their presence was aimed at calming any tense situations and that they were also there to remind police not to hurt protesters. But after the prosecution finished putting forward his evidence, Judge Sham Xiu Man said Ms Chan had no case to answer and she was free to go. There are, however, seven other defendants in the same case and the prosecution against them is to continue. The government says religious gatherings can resume from Friday as it continues to roll back social distancing measures. Places of worship won't be allowed to operate at more than 50% of their capacity and there must be no food and drink. Meanwhile, the limit of four people participating in team sports will also be lifted. Microbiologist Yun Kwok Young has warned that Hong Kong is bound to have more problems with coronavirus because some people are ignoring social distancing rules. Joanne Wong has this report. During a radio discussion on reducing the transmission of COVID-19, Yun Kwok Young said he'd heard that many visitors to the bar area of Lang Kwai Fong at the weekend were simply flouting the social distancing measures in place. The Hong Kong University professor said if that's the case, then of course problems are going to arise. He said social distancing measures only work if people have a sense of civic awareness and observe the rules. Professor Yun also said that it's okay for various activities to resume as long as there are targeted measures in high-risk places, such as requiring people to keep a face mask on at all times and ensuring good ventilation. He also revealed that he has written to the authorities to suggest that there should be minimal sharing of equipment in hospitals, such as blood pressure gauges, to prevent any cross-contamination. Hong Kong people who live in Macau and the mainland may soon be exempt from a 14-day mandatory quarantine when they return to the SAR. Chief Executive Carrie Lam says the government is now in the final stages of ironing out an agreement with Macau and mainland authorities on the matter. Priscilla Ng reports. Speaking to reporters ahead of her weekly Executive Council meeting, the Chief Executive said this is part of a strategy to help resume the movement of people in the region in a gradual and orderly manner. Mainland has this uh, virus under very good control. There has not been a local confirmed case for a very long period. So there is this scientific basis for us to relax the border controls between Hong Kong and mainland. There is an expectation that Hong Kong residents now residing in the mainland should be given earlier priority to return to Hong Kong without being subject to the 14-day mandatory quarantine arrangement, provided that they can uh, show a negative test um, of COVID-19. 
She did stress that any agreement will take into account the public health situation, adding that the Hong Kong economy will suffer tremendously if the city is hit by another wave of COVID-19 infections. Because it's so closely related to our anti-epidemic strategy, so I have a personal interest and I have been very hands-on on those matters. Whether uh, this needs um, a mutual agreement with the Guangdong authorities, whether there will be a quota, and how many control points we will allow this arrangement, because at the moment we only have the Hong Kong Zuhai Macau Bridge and the Sunzhen Bay uh, control point. All this will be sorted out in our internal discussions. Mrs. Lam said the government is also continuing talks with other countries over the possibility of creating travel bubbles, saying it is doing all it can to give the economy a much-needed boost. She added that authorities will kickstart more public works projects to help tackle unemployment in the construction sector. Foreign domestic workers won't be getting a pay rise in the coming year. The government says that the minimum monthly wage of helpers will remain unchanged at $4,630. There's no change to the minimum food allowance either, with the administration citing local economic conditions for the decision. A 150-metre-long dock on the central waterfront has officially been handed over to the People's Liberation Army. At a handover ceremony, Chief Executive Carrie Lam said that even though the dock has strong military and defence purposes, the Hong Kong garrison had agreed to consider opening the site up to the public on a discretionary basis. Mrs Lam thanked mainland officials and said the offer showed the military's care for Hong Kong. Police have arrested six people on suspicion of conning banks into issuing replacement credit cards for customers, which... The syndicate then intercepted and used on spending sprees. They're said to have netted $2 million from the scam. Senior Inspector Tang Kai Wing says the gang exploited the personal information of the cardholders. The syndicate impersonated victim over phone to make inquiry from bank and make a loss report to the credit card. Given that they can provide the information of the victims, the banks then issued the replacement card to the registered residential address of the victim. The syndicate then deployed their syndicate member to try to steal the letter. And after that, they used the following cards to make some high-value amount of transactions. Nokia has struck a deal with Britain's mobile operator BT to supply it with 5G radio equipment, replacing the Chinese telecom giant Huawei. It follows a British government decision to freeze out Huawei products on national security grounds and under pressure from the Trump administration. The BBC's Rory Kessler-Jones has the, the details. Earlier this year, the government first limited any involvement by Huawei in the UK's 5G networks, then ordered that all its equipment should be stripped out by 2027. That left BT, which had agreed to give the Chinese firm a major role in its 5G network, with a problem. Now it's signed a deal with Nokia to replace Huawei as the major supplier of 5G equipment at masts and base stations. That should leave the Finnish firm with two-thirds of the equipment across the 5G network. A reminder of our top stories tonight. Most of the pro-democracy camp decides to stay on in LegCo for an extra year. Duncan Pescott is leaving his post as CEO of the West Kowloon Cultural District Authority. And Beijing condemns calls for National Day protests in Hong Kong. The news from RTHK. RTHK.
It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's NewsRup programme. More than a million people around the world are now known to have died after catching COVID-19. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, says that the figure is mind-numbing and there needs to be international cooperation to tackle the crisis. Alexander Matthew from the British Red Cross says every death has a huge impact. This is a sombre moment when we realise not just the scale of the tragedy, but the number of personal tragedies that are accompanying that number. It's for everyone who's died, they've left a family, they've left a loved one, people have lost their livelihoods as a result. So the scale of the tragedy is even bigger than that staggering number. Some experts believe that the real number of fatalities could be significantly higher, as testing rates in many countries remain low. Margaret Harris from the World Health Organization spoke to the BBC. Well, we're pretty sure that there are unfortunately many, many more deaths because not every country counts deaths the same way. And uh, you know, many people may well have died in their homes or in uh, institutions without necessarily being tested or reported as COVID-19. But what it also tells us is what an enormous toll this virus is taking on, on the entire world. And I wonder also what implications you're reading in at the WHO, because this is something that you have to be across and have to be very interested in as well, about the rate of climb, the continuation. If we've had a million thus far, what do we expect for the next year if we don't get a vaccine? Well, certainly what we do know is you can turn it around. This is one of the special things about this virus. It's it's very transmissible. It's uh, It's very dangerous. But it also is suppressible, and quite a few countries have done that. So people are beginning to feel a sense of hopelessness, but they should look at where it's worked. And it's really worked because individuals, every individual in society has played their part, but also has been enabled, has been empowered to do the things that stop this virus. Um, what's interesting about that is, I mean, the, the, the big countries, US, India, Brazil, that's hardly surprising that they should have the most cases and the most deaths. China isn't there. And China, of course... <laughs> largest country in the world. So what's the lesson from China, therefore? In China, particularly, there was very early action and it was action at all levels. So yes, it was government action to say, we're going to stop transmission. And, you know, they were the very first to come to a lockdown. And at the time, I remember all of us saying, goodness, just imagine being able to do that. And now we know societies around the world have been able to achieve that. But when they did that, they also did everything at community level. And they made sure that if people were being um, uh, self-isolating, that there were the means to ensure they were fed, to ensure that they were managed, that if they were asked to self-isolate, they really did. So it's a matter of doing everything at every level and doing it all. But, when we, but, but when we look at that, Margaret, and you describe, I mean, it's, it's good that you, remi you remind us to think back to how we were looking at it in, in, in January and February. There's no way that we would do that kind of thing, we thought. We were kind of right, weren't we? Isn't it only authoritarian countries, police states, that can do that? Are there any examples of free countries that have been successful? 
I could look at Australia. They put a big lockdown in um, Melbourne and Australia, I'm one of them. We are not people who take to authority very well. <laughs> and yet they did it and they've brought their, their numbers right down. Uh, there are a lot of East Asian countries. Most of them uh, would be categorized as very much uh, active democracies that have managed to bring their numbers down. But the key is trust at all levels. Um, commitment and enabling, making it possible for people to do the things they're asked to do. COVID vaccines sound like all-round good news, but maybe not for the shark population. Conservationists fear the fish will be killed in their tens of thousands for their liver oil, which is a primary ingredient in several new vaccines being devised. The pressure group Shark Allies claims that if the world's population received just one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, up to half a million sharks could be slaughtered. Stephanie Brendel, founder of Shark Allies in Los Angeles, spoke to the BBC. Shark liver oil is found in sharks because sharks do not have a swim bladder and they use an extra large um, liver to deal with buoyancy and the pressures of the deep ocean. So the extra large livers have a lot of oil in them and the oil is what's creating the buoyancy and that is the product that is used for the oil that is then turned into squalene. And what is it used for specifically? Squalene in COVID vaccines and other vaccines is used as an adjuvant. And an adjuvant, the simplest way to explain it is that it is a booster. It uh, creates a better efficacy in the a vaccine, meaning it uh, makes it more effective and, and potentially less of the antigen has to be used to create a dose. Is there any other way of using a different adjuvant in these particular vaccines, in your opinion? Let me start by saying that squalene can be made from many sources and that by the time oil is turned into squalene, it's chemically we're told it's chemically the same, whether it is made from an animal-derived um, oil or for a plant or bacteria-derived oil. There are alternatives uh, already existing on the market, and the cosmetics industry is already using these alternatives. Um, you can make squalene from olive, amaranth, uh, wheat germ, even from bacteria and uh, certain algae. And of course, that uses a lot more sustainable because you can actually grow plants and bacteria and wheat and you cannot grow sharks. Why then can't you breed sharks for this purpose? There is no such thing as shark farming. Um, sharks are incredibly okay. hard to keep in captivity and to raise an adult shark, um, you would have to give them so much protein that, that they're predators. You know, you'd have to feed them fish for 10 years to have an adult shark. That would okay. be prohibitively expensive and they probably wouldn't survive. I guess many people listening, uh, they may be animal lovers, but they may say, well, we have a global pandemic and however we can get mm -hmm. to a vaccine, the quickest route, then maybe that's what we have to do. Yeah, we totally get that. And we're, we're not standing in the way of that whatsoever. It is most important to get a vaccine and there's no way that we want to hold this up or hinder it in any way. We're not saying slow it down, halt it, or change anything. What we're saying is that at some point, sooner rather than later, we should be looking at these alternatives, not only because, you know, they're harming sharks. Um, it's just that basing a, a vaccine on, on, on an ingredient that comes from a wild animal, it's also not very reliable because 
what if the countries that deliver the shark oil are going to need all of their own shark oil for, for their own vaccines? What if they triple the price because the, the market becomes important? The head of the Green Earth, Edwin Lau, says that the collapse of an agreement to lease out an eco-park site for a paper recycling mill has set back the crucial project by at least two years. It's the second major recycling plant project to collapse in recent weeks. Mr Lau says a key factor is LegCo's failure to approve household waste charging. But he told Mike Weeks that the paper mill saga raises serious questions about the government's tendering process. I heard from sources saying that the company that got the land didn't really have a very good estimate of the construction cost of building up the plant. And somehow they say in Hong Kong, the construction cost is very costly as compared with building the same thing in the mainland China. So I think it is really not supposed to happen in, in a commercial world that they should have done all the risk assessment and all the kind of business management assessment uh, on cost on everything before they uh, send in the bid to, to try to get the land from the government. And the lease is 20 years. It's not two years, it's 20 yeah, years. Yeah. It's for long term developing something that is for a long term benefit for the environment, for the city. <laughs> So this is now being put up to open tender again. So, so how much is this going to delay the whole process? At least two years. Now, um, the bidders uh, got the um, successful uh, approval from government is uh, um, by the end of 2018. So now it's two years' time. It's wasted. And then when the government start to tender again, uh, probably by the end of this year, then they need to uh, review and process at least quickest, at least another one year before the new successful bidder can get into the venue to start doing any construction work. One year is the quickest. So it is very undesirable that we are wasting time, wasting resources, and our valuable resources, in this case, is the waste paper, mm. is being wasted to our landfill and, and, and not generate any revenue for the recycling trade. But we also recently had a uh, food reprocessing plant pulling out of a similar lease with yeah. the government, didn't we? So, so what is happening with regard to our reprocessing and uh, recycling industries? Now, one key factor uh, due to uh, all this uh, failure is that we still cannot have the waste charging bill to get approved uh, in the LegCo. Now, without a financial disincentive, for the entire community, no matter you are in business or you are from to the household, there is no incentive to drive you to reduce the waste that you might produce in the first place. Amnesty International says it has been forced to halt its India operations due to what it calls reprisals from the government. Amnesty says its bank accounts have been frozen and it's been forced to lay off staff in the country and suspend all its campaign and research work. The government is yet to respond to the allegations. 
Anna-Marie Evans asked our New Delhi correspondent, Morali Krishnan, what is happening with Amnesty? Well, Amnesty International has decided to shut shop. It's halting work in India because it believes that it is a continuing crackdown and uh, harassment by the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The last straw was when its uh, bank accounts were frozen earlier this month, and uh, therefore they thought that enough was enough and decided to put the shutters down for the moment. I was speaking to their executive director of India, Abhinash Kumar, and he said this uh, continuing crackdown over the last two years and the complete freezing of their bank accounts was not accidental. And basically, he more than hinted that it was a, a witch hunt, which was completely unfounded and motivated. So given the kind of uh, problems which uh, Amnesty is facing right now, they had no other option but to close operations. It's quite unfortunate, but then 150-odd employees, which it has hired in India, will have to go, and that too during a, uh, a very trying period during the pandemic in India. Now, why does it feel under pressure? Why does this uh, human rights organization feel that they are being pressured by the Indian government? I think, you know, uh, it's more amnesty because this is the first organization right now which will have to ever just shut shop. And given the fact that it operates in 70 countries, and you know, the only other country which has been forced to shut operations was Russia in 2016. But uh, there has been a, a sort of a degree of intolerance uh, in, uh, ever since Prime Minister Modi came into power in 2014. Dissent and criticism is something which it does not take very easily. And there were two uh, important reports uh, which uh, Amnesty brought out in August last year, which I think was perhaps the reason why uh, which irked the government in a very big fashion. One was a report on one year of the uh, uh, marking of the anniversary of the scrapping of special status in Kashmir. It brought out an update on the situation of human rights in the region. And within days, it released another damning report on the riots in Delhi earlier this year. Uh, and it accused the police of complicity in the violence. That was communal violence, which claimed the lives of 53 people, mostly from minority Muslim community. So therefore, these are two reports, I think, which uh, particularly irked the government, and therefore it sort of tightened the screws on Amnesty International. That's what Amnesty International believes. But then there has been no word from the Indian government so far on Amnesty's allegations. But the top government officials who are investigating uh, Amnesty, uh, which is the enforcement directorate, believe that it did commit irregularities in receiving foreign funds. According to the Home Ministry, that's the organization which is looking into Amnesty's finances. It says Amnesty got money through the foreign direct investment route, and that is not allowed in the case of non-profits like Amnesty. Our New Delhi correspondent, Morali Krishnan, there, speaking to Anna-Marie Evans. Those stories were part of the News Wrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. The Task Force for the Study on Tenancy Control of Subdivided Units is conducting research on subdivided units. No matter if you are living in a subdivided unit or not, the Task Force wants to hear from you. Join the public forums to be held in October. The task force will also conduct interviews with residents of subdivided units for the survey. Please offer your support. Visit the Transport and Housing Bureau website www.thb.gov.hk for details. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December will have...
have moments to Performed by Mento Vani and his orchestra. Theme from Limelight. Spotlight now on Jim Reeves. Welcome to my world. Come on in Miracles 
I guess Still happen now and then Step into my heart 